sure you got to love. Principle. But don't say, hate is my enemy. What does it say? What's that word? Hate is my enemy. I got to fight it day and night. What else else is the line? Love is the only weapon. Shit. Bullshit. Martin Luther King died with love. Kennedy died talking about something he couldn't even understand. Some kind of generalized love. And he never even backed it up. He shut down. Bullshit. Love is the only weapon with which I got to fight. I got a hell of a lot of weapons to fight. I got my claws, I got purposes, I got guns, I got dynamite, I got a hell of a lot to fight. I'll fight, I'll fight, oh, I will fight, I will fight, I will fight, I will fight. Welcome to the Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. On tonight's episode, we will discuss the famous People's Temple and Jim Jones. Are you ready to drink the Kool-Aid? This is Scarlet Tavern. Alright, so that little clip in the beginning... Uh, was the infamous Jim Jones uh, a little bit towards the end of um, the People's Temple and the Jonestown Massacre. Um, so, yeah, this is we had planned on doing a different topic, but due to scheduling conflicts, uh, Ben couldn't get all of his stuff done. So we have decided to go with. Jim Jones and the People's Temple for the next two weeks, and then we will get to Ben's topic. Um, we would like to apologize for the last episodes. We did not realize how long all of these were going to be, so they had to be split up in two. We now know that we have to split everything in two, so the production quality should be a little bit better. Um so we want to thank you for bearing with us. And yeah, I mean, at the point of recording this, we have hit globally uh, within its first three or four days of the first episode dropping. So we want to thank everybody for that. Um, yes, thank you. So let's just go ahead and jump right into this. Um, James Warren Jones was born on May 13th, 1931 in the rural community of Crete, Indiana, to James Thurman Jones and Lynetta Putnam. Jones was of Irish and Welsh descent. He and his mother both claimed to have some Cherokee ancestry, but there's no evidence of this. Jones's father was a disabled World War I vet who suffered from severe breathing difficulties due to injuries which he sustained in a chemical weapons attack. He tried to augment his income by occasionally working on neighborhood uh, repair projects, because the military pension he earned due to his wounds was insufficient to support his family. Uh, and unfortunately, that is what still happens to this day. Yes, um, it does. His father's illness led to financial difficulties, which in turn resulted in intense marital problems between the Joneses' parents. Uh, in 1934, in the midst of the Great Depression, the Jones family was evicted from their home for failure to make mortgage payments. Their relatives purchased a shack for them to live in at the nearby town of Lynn. The new home where Jones grew up lacked plumbing and electricity. 
in Lynn. The family attempted to earn an income through farming, but again met with failure when Jones' father's health further deteriorated. The family often lacked adequate food and relied on financial support from their extended family. They sometimes resorted to foraging in nearby forests and fields to supplement their diet. So already off to a great start making of a great person. Um, well, they, uh, it, it's a tough time, especially there in the Midwest, you know, during the, the, the Depression. Dust- and it was doubly impact because farming was very much impacted in the Midwest with the Dust Bowl. Yeah. Um, Jones's parents were frequently absent during his childhood, although his, or I'm sorry, according to multiple Jones biographers, his mother had no natural maternal instincts. And as a result, she frequently neglected her son. When Jones started to attend school, his extended family threatened to cut off their financial assistance unless his mother got a job, forcing her to work outside her home. Meanwhile, Jones's father was hospitalized multiple times due to his illness. As a result, Jones's parents were frequently absent during his childhood. Although his aunts and uncles lived close and close by and gave him some supervision, Jones's family uh, Jones frequently strolled his town streets naked as a baby with no one watching over him. Uh, Jones was cared for by the female students of Lynn or the female residents of Lynn. And they frequently invited him into their houses to give him food, clothing and other gifts. Myrtle Kennedy, the wife of Nazarene church's pastor developed a special attachment to Jones. She gave Jones a Bible and encouraged him to study it, teaching him to follow the holiness code of the Nazarene church. So we're talking about the Nazarene church in the forties radical Christianity. Very. Yeah. Very. Um, I don't know too much about it, but it is very much that, uh, what you would remember that stereotypical country pastor, yes. fire and brimstone. This is, yeah, this is yeah. not the tranquil, uh, you know, just the, like the tranquil love one another kind of thing that you would, you'll see, we see later in evangelical Christianity over the years. This is fire and brimstone and damnation to everybody. Yeah, I mean, the Church of the Nazarene still exists, not to this extreme, but they still do exist. Um, although I believe the Church of the Nazarene is de- is in a decline at this point. Um So as Jones grew older, he attended services at most of the churches in Lynn, often going to multiple churches each week, and he was baptized in several of them. Jones developed a desire to become a preacher as a child and began to practice preaching in private. His mother claimed that she was disturbed when she caught him imitating the pastor of a local uh, apostolic Pentecostal church, and she unsuccessfully attempted to prevent him from attending the church's services. Again, uh, uh, apostolic Pentecostal church in the forties. Very, very dangerous back then. Um, Jones regularly visited a casket manufacturer in Lynn and held mock funerals for roadkill that he collected. Um, One neighbor of the Jones family even stated that Jones killed a cat with a knife for one of those funerals. When he could not get any children to attend his funerals, he would perform the services alone. And this is what he would do. He would actually hold these services and invite the neighborhood kids to come out and attend the funeral services for these animals. 
So he wasn't just doing this by himself. He would go door to door and grab these kids in Lynn and make them attend the services. Um, Jones claimed to have unique abilities such as the capacity to fly. He once leapt off of a building's roof to demonstrate his abilities to others, but he fell and broke his arm. Surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, at times, he would put other children into life-threatening situations and tell them he was guided by the angel of death. Keep in mind, this is all as a child still. Uh, he is not even a teenager yet. Um, Jones allegedly committed countless sacrilegious pranks in the churches he attended as a boy, according to claims he made in his adult life. He claimed that he had stolen the Pentecostal minister's Bible and covered Acts 238 with cow manure. And just for others, I forgot to bring this up. I'm not from uh, Acts 238. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you were, you will receive the gift of the Holy spirit. So basically the Pentecostal churches, bread and butter, the Holy spirit. Um, and obviously we touched on it last week. Ben grew up Catholic. I, however, grew up Pentecostal. I am no longer Pentecostal, um, but I did grow up Pentecostal. Uh, so I will Ben connected more with the, the upbringing of the last person. I know the upbringing of Jim Jones because I was forced into this. Um, he also asserted that he substituted a cup of his own urine for the holy water once at a Catholic church. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh that was that. I can already know. I already. So. What most people may not be aware, um, if any of our viewers out there are Catholic and know anything about old school, well, it, it, mass was conducted a lot differently back in the 30s and 40s. This is before Vatican II, where they had a big re- reformation on it and like the procedures and how they did everything. At this point, nowadays in Catholic churches, they it's optional to receive the. Uh, oh, it wasn't the back blood- then. No, no, it wasn't. You got the body of Christ and you got the blood of Christ. So, yeah. oh, I wonder. I, oh, they I got really, the they got the body, all right. I I I really hope the pre the the priest smelled that before, because I can tell you all listen, from experience they, they, that wine doesn't smell good on a good listen, day. They don't drink out of the same one, so they're. I guarantee you, they're not going to smell it. They. At, I've been to a few Catholic ceremonies, and the the priests have their own cups. They don't share the same. Yeah, stuff. they have like a cer- the ceremonial uh-huh. one that that doesn't leave so, the altar, and so, then the and then the the other ones that they bring there. Yeah, the congregation uses a different one, so he probably pissed in the congregational one. <laughs> so All the, the priests same. had no fucking idea, and everybody's going. Uh, Ugh. And I'm again. I can all tell you from experience it, that that smell. It does. It's not like this isn't like a Chateau Briere or something like that. This isn't the good stuff. This is like it's wine. It's Guys, like you can you can actually go get it at Walmart. 
Oh yeah, really? In the, Not that I'm going to get well, it. Well, I don't. I don't know about the one that you guys use, but what we used in the Pentecostal church uh, for communion, um, you can actually go get it at in the Israeli section of any grocery store, like the ethnic section. Um, it's a. Uh, it's called that. like Kavim or Kazim or something like that, and it's a purple bottle. And it was not, not good. Um, yes. So although they had sympathy for Jones because of his poor circumstances, his neighbors reported that he was an unusual child who, obs- who was obsessed with religion and death. One Jones biographer suggested that he developed his unusual interest because he found it difficult to make friends. Although his strange religious practices stood out, the most to his neighbors, they reported that he misbehaved in more serious ways. He frequently stole candy from the merchants in town. His mother was required to pay for his thefts. Jones regularly used offensive profanity. Commonly, now, we say offensive profanity. Again, this is the 40s. This is, a, this is also a, a very, style, too. So and a very today. religious... Yeah, but, okay, so... He would say, good morning, you son of a bitch. Or the other one that they considered was profanity was, hello, you dirty bastard. I mean, I say worse to you when I talk to yeah. you. In the, we literally call each other a bitch all the time. So, but Jerk. again, this was, this was Bible this, community this, in the 40s. And again, like Caleb said before, this is not a teenage Jim Jones. This no. is like eight. 10-year-old Jim yeah, Jones this kid is not talking that old. like this. Um, yeah. Jones' mother usually beat him with a leather belt in order to punish his misbehavior. Common. Yeah, I would, um, too. Jones developed... I was beat with a leather belt. Uh, my dad will be listening to this. Uh, he already made a comment about me talking about getting beat in the last episode. So uh-huh. uh, I'm just letting everybody know that, yes, he did beat me with a belt. Um, but, guys... This was the 90s, so it, it was allowed back then because we were real people. I really, I, I really don't like it when you talk to the 90s like it was a bygone era. It wasn't it, that long ago. It was now. Dude, you do you listen, you, what you have to understand is people that were born in, what is it, uh... 2003 2002 are old enough to drink the yeah. depths of my hatred for me yeah. is reaching new levels 2002 they are old enough to drink so for everyone for everyone not listening i was born in 1988 he's old that's why that shut up um that's why i was like this is old anyway um so Jones developed an intense interest in religion and social doctrines. He became a voracious reader who studied Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, and Mahatma Gandhi. Great people to to uh, read least, after. Mahatma well, Gandhi's well, fine. Yeah, everybody else is. Hitler, yeah. Stalin, Karl Marx, and Mao Zedong. Uh. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> Um, Jones would tell his future wife, Marceline, that Mao Zedong was his hero. 
Um, a uh, pedophile who let who led to the massacre of thousands, if not millions, of people. Yeah, that was his hero. Right. Yeah. Um, he spent hours in the community library and he brought books home so he could read them in the evenings. Um, now I will say Jones was a highly educated person growing up. He was not stupid by any means. He was very smart, well-read, uh, from all accounts, even as a young child, he was well above the average. Um, so he was, especially for coming up from poverty, he was pretty, a lot of people that, especially in the great depression era, they were not well educated because they did not have the money for stuff. Um, but he just was able, he lucked out with his family that they were able to provide him with stuff. Um, although he studied different political systems, Jones did not, um, he did not espouse any radical political views in his youth, but as world war two started, he developed an interest in the Nazi party. Surprise. Oh, those Nazis. They just keep popping up everywhere. Don't he they? was fascinated by their pomp, their cohesion and Hitler's total power. The members of his neighborhood found it disconcerting that he extolled Nazi Germany Jones acted as a dictator over the other kids, ordering them to goose step together and beating those who disobeyed. One childhood friend recalled Jones shouting Heil Hitler and giving the Nazi salute to German prisoners of war who were traveling through their town on their way to a detention facility. Yeah. Commenting on his childhood, Jones himself stated, I was ready to kill by the end of the third grade. I mean, I was so aggressive and hostile, I was ready to kill. Nobody gave me love, any understanding. In those days, a parent was supposed to go with a child to school functions. There was some kind of school performance and everybody's parents was there but mine. I was, I'm standing there alone, always alone. Tim Reiterman. A journalist and biographer of Jones wrote that Jones's attraction to religion was strongly influenced by his desire for a family. Jones actually went to see the Kennedy family in 1942 when they spent the summer in Richmond, Indiana. They took part in services four times a week while attending a summer religious convention at a nearby Pentecostal church. Kennedys were very religious in the 40s. Which is interesting because the Kennedys were Catholic. They were yeah. devout Catholics. So and back and again, I can attest to you, I can attest from having family who were Catholic back then. Um, that is very unheard of. Most yep. Catholics back then would have just skip, would have found it more acceptable just to skip church altogether instead of going to another denomination. Especially, yeah, Caleb can probably attest to this. Pentecostal and Roman Catholic services are like apples and oranges they we asked for we're all still under the christianity umbrella but we are we are very fundamentally different in how we go about our worship yeah very very much especially uh, especially back then yeah Pen pentecostals are ones that scare everybody um so when Jones returned to Lynn in the fall, he upset his neighborhood by explaining sexual reproduction in detail to young children. 
Jones's mother was urged to control his behavior by many individuals in Lynn, but she refused. Many parents decided to keep their kids away from Jones as a result of the issue. He had established himself as an outcast among his friends by the time he started high school and was growingly despised by the locals. In high school, Jones continued to stand out from his peers. He went by the nickname Jimmy during his youth and, and almost always carried his Bible with him. Jones was a good student who enjoyed debating with his teachers. He also had the habit of refusing to respond to anyone who spoke to him first and only engaged in conversations when he started them. In contrast to his peers, Jones was known to dress in his Sunday church clothes every day of the week. His religious views alienated him from other young people. He frequently, con he frequently confronted them for drinking beer, smoking, and dancing. At times, he would even interrupt other young people's events and insisted that they read the Bible with him. So he was a fun person at parties. Yeah, fun, fun, fun. Um, Jones did not enjoy participating in sports because he detested losing. That'll come up later. Um, hmm. So he coached teams for younger children instead. Jones was disturbed by the treatment of the African-Americans who were in attendance at a baseball game he attended in Richmond, Indiana. The events at that baseball game brought discrimination against African-Americans to Jones's attention and influenced his strong aversion to racism. Now, I will say, with all of the wrong that obviously Jim Jones did, there was some good in him. With fighting segregation, um, we'll see later that he ends up being hospitalized and they... Because his last name is Jones, they accidentally put him in. They had already. So before then, when you would go into a hospital, when they saw your name coming in, they would assign you to a bed before they even saw you. So they saw his name, his last name being Jones, very common African-American last name. Uh, they actually put him in a African-American wing. And when they found out he was white, they were going to move him and he refused to move. And decided to stay in that wing. Again, every all the wrong he did, as psychotic as he was, the little bit of good he did for the African American community still withstands to this day. So he did do some good stuff for the African American community. He created a church because back then there weren't many African American churches that they could attend. So he created churches for them, created places for them to to be together and tried to get rid of segregation. An interesting point, though, also just a fun little tidbit of information on um, the Ku Klux Klan, actually. Now, where do you think the, the, lar the largest membership of the Ku Klux Klan ever was? Indiana. Yeah. It well, was the... Most people would always assume Georgia or Alabama or, or even no, Florida, Indiana. but it was Indiana. The Klan, the Klan never enjoyed as much political clout and influence than it did in Indiana. I think for like at least three consecutive governors and lieutenant governors were active, high-ranking members of the Klan on top of being in there. So this, um, as we've also will see, Jones had a, a familial connection to the clan so this was kind of really out there yeah i would say most of his good the acts were good but i would say whatever we i we researched about jones i would say 
the good that he did, yes, it was good, but a lot of it was born out of what we'll see is his growing narcissism and controlling of people. So that's just me. Like you said, it was good. He he created a, a great, a good haven for African-Americans in a state that was very much actively trying to run them all out of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, maybe he did it for selfish reasons, but he still did it, and it helped them back in that day. Um, so, then, so as Ben said, uh, Jones's father belonged to the Indiana branch of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, which enjoyed considerable support, considerable support in Indiana during the Great Depression. Jones described how he and his father had a disagreement about race and added that they had not spoken for many, many years as a result of his father forbidding one of Jones's black friends from entering his home. Ultimately, Jones's involvement in organizing baseball leagues ended when he callously murdered a dog in front of players by dropping it from a window. Just when we were starting to like J- Jim Jones, he yeah. goes and does that. It's like... Well, thanks for trying to end segregation, but you killed the dog, so go after yourself. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so he uh, Jones's parents separated in 1945, and they eventually divorced. Jones moved to Richmond, Indiana, uh, with his mother, where he graduated from Richmond High School in December 1948, early and with honors. Like I said, he was a very good student, uh, very smart person. Jones and his mother lost a financial support of their relatives following the divorce, because again, this is the 40s, and they were. That part was literally very, that way. They were very, very religious, which means divorce was a no go. Yeah. You the the Bible states that their divorce is not allowed. So, um, Jones's mother, uh, let's see, to support himself, Jones began working as an orderly at Richmond's Reed Hospital in 1946. He was well regarded by the senior management, but staff members later recalled that Jones exhibited disturbing behaviors towards some patients and coworkers. He began dating a nurse in training, uh, Marceline Baldwin. While he was working at Reed Hospital. Uh, Marceline is going to play a big part later on. Um, Jones moved to Bloomington, Indiana in November 1948. Where he attended Indiana University Bloomington. With the intention of becoming a doctor. But changed his mind shortly thereafter. During his time. Go ahead. I said he probably he probably read a couple pages of a medical of a medical journal or textbook and he probably just nope. Yeah, well, he was probably like, well, this is this doesn't follow the Bible. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. During his time at university, Jones was impressed by a speech uh, which Eleanor Roosevelt delivered about the plight of African Americans, and he began to uh, espouse support for communism and other radical political views for the first time. So he's killing dogs and he's a commie. Great. So, because Eleanor Roosevelt was totally trying to get you to begin going through communism. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think that's what her speech was about. Well, I'll see if I can find that speech and we'll play a clip of it next week. Um, Because I'll be, I'll, I'll try and find what speech that was. Um, yeah. 
because the Roosevelt's always gave good speeches. Um, Jones and Baldwin continued their relationship while he attended college, and the couple married on June 12th, 1949. Their first home was in Bloomington, where Marceline worked in a nearby hospital while Jones attended college. Marceline was a Methodist, and she and Jones immediately fell into arguments about church. Okay. I'm sure he probably thought she was too too footloose and fancy free, which yes. anybody who knows anything about old school Methodist, <laughs> that's that I say that ironically. So so this is the thing is especially then and it it's different now. Um a lot of churches unless you are hitting like Latter day Saints or I'll, or I'll say Latter Latter Day Saints Christianity because we are going to talk about Latter Day Saints later on because they, I, they are considered a cult still, um, but most of them now are pretty similar. Um, you Plus, you have you have Church of God, you have Methodist, you have Episcopalian, um, Apolistic, you have Evangelical. Um, there are tons of different aspects of Christianity, but right now of day nowadays, they are all the same back then Methodists were, they were strict by today's standards, but they were a lot more free caring than what Jim Jones was used to. Very much, I think the best method, the best stereotype, and I say this is a stereotype because that's what it is. It's not meant to offend anybody, but this the method, the stereotype of the, of a Methodist is someone who, no alcohol, no, very the social gatherings are not places for, you know, drinking and carousing. They're just there to for people to have nice, quiet, polite conversation. These are like. I guess like the they would call them stiffs or the stick in the muds. That would be Methodist, the best way to describe them, the old school one. Yeah. Nowadays, most of the the of the Christian denominations, unless the most extreme extreme Orthodox of any religion, which we will talk to about other extreme religions in our uh, in cults uh, in future episodes. We have a whole list. Yes. Ready for you guys, but um, most are actually have have abandoned or don't observe the old strictness because many people were turned off by it. So, um, so Jones' strong opposition to the Methodist Church's racial segregationalist um, practices was an early strain on their marriage. Jones insisted on attending Bloomington's full gospel tabernacle, but eventually compromised and began attending a local Methodist church on most Sunday mornings. Despite attending church every week, Jones privately pressed his wife to accept atheism. Um, This is where we start to see Jones leaving the church and kind of going into his own and practicing atheism um, slash agnosticism. Um, after attending Indiana university for two years, the couple relocated to Indianapolis, not too, too far from me in 1951. Uh, Jones took night classes at Butler university, continue his education, finally earning a 
degree in secondary education in 1961. In 1951, the 20-year-old Jones began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. Um, Jones and his family faced harassment from government authorities for their affiliation with communist parties during 1952. In one event, Jones's mother was harassed by FBI agents in front of her coworkers because she had attended a communist meeting with her son. Jones became frustrated with the persecution of communists in the U S reflecting back on his participation in the communist party. Jones said that he asked himself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was infiltrate the church. Hmm. Um, In early 1952, Jones announced to his wife and her family that he would become a Methodist minister, believing the church was ready to put real socialism into practice. Jones was surprised when a Methodist district superintendent helped him get a start in the church, even though he knew Jones to be a communist. Methodist, communist, same difference. Um (laughs) In summer of 1952, Jones was hired as a student pastor to the children at the Somerset Southside Methodist Church. I believe they're still in existence, uh, where he launched a project to create a playground that would open to children of all races. Jones continued to visit and speak at Pentecostal churches while serving as a Methodist student pastor. In early 1954, Jones was dismissed from his position in the Methodist Church uh, ostensibly for stealing church funds, though he later claimed he left the church because its leaders forbade him from integrating blacks into his congregation. So there he is doing one thing and then spinning it to his own advantage, which we'll see later on. He does a lot, spins things and makes it look like he's the good guy. I want to see if this church is still around. I would say, like I said, this is now we're starting really Jim Jones is start the narcissistic personality that I believe is there is really starting to come fruition. It's not my fault. They just didn't like that I was doing this. Hmm. Okay. Even though a Methodist preacher literally brought a communist into his into his con into like the leading up as a pastoral position in his church at a time. I don't know if anybody out there would know the 1950s were not a kind time to, to communists. Senator McCarthy was really at this point, ratcheting up the, the anti-communist witch hunts that he would do that would blacklist a lot of people, a lot of innocent people from jobs and income simply because they, may or may not have attended one meeting in in their youth when communism first came out or they just simply didn't agree with the current what was the cur- the current uh mindset of the united states and everything at the time of dealing with the soviet union or anything again for better or for worse whatever it's not trying to get political but many people who just supporting unions for getting accused of communism and so yeah um so supposedly nobody knows exactly where that church is Hmm. um they can't nobody can find records of it they think that when the whole thing with jim jones came about they wiped themselves off the map 
Um, so wouldn't surprise me. Um, because obviously him being removed from this church is the start of the people's church. Um, around this time in 1953, Jones visited a Pentecostal ladder rain convention in Columbus, Indiana. Uh, those things still happen today. They're not called like, they're not called ladder rain conventions. Um, Aren't they called revivals? Yeah. So I have been to numerous revivals growing up. I was forced to go to those growing up. Um, I was at a very famous one called the Brownsville Revival um, in Brownsville, Florida. Very, very famous in the Pentecostal community. It was one of the biggest revivals in the the nation. Uh, I was actually there. I was probably like six or seven. Um, but yeah, now they're called revivals. Actually one just happened here in Ohio. Um, so that was in Columbus, Indiana, where a woman prophesied that Jones was a prophet with a great ministry. Jones was surprised by the endorsement, but gladly accepted the call to preach and rose to the podium to deliver a message to the crowd. Pentecostalism was in the midst of of the healing revival and latter rain movements during the 1950s. Um, when we'll see it here, very, very big in the 1950s was the healing tents. Um, the Pentecostal church would travel the country, go to these small towns, set up these large white circus tents, basically, and usher people in and they would, and I'll be completely honest with you. They would plant people in the audience that had ailments and they would heal them so that, yeah, they would, this was, this was the time and it continued all the way through the nineties of beating somebody with a fucking towel until they miraculously could walk again or grow an arm or, it it was a lot of it was circus performances basically, um, so I thought it was very fitting that it happened in basically a circus tent because that's what it was. It was a big show. There was plants everywhere, um, and it still happens to this day. Uh, actually, some of the most famous uh, Pentecostal pastors have been uh, were found out that they had plants in their church. Uh, Benny Hinn Ministries, Benny Hinn. What Benny Hinn is one of the largest mega pastors uh, in the Why world. Google Benny Hinn. You'll you'll know who I'm talking about. Um, but Benny Hinn, it was it was found out that he had plants in the audience and he was faking healings. Um. So. He delivered that uh, believing that racially integrated and rapidly growing latter rain movement offered him a greater opportunity to become a preacher. Jones successfully convinced his wife to leave the Methodist church and join the Pentecostals in 1953. Jones began attending and preaching at the Laurel street tabernacle in Indianapolis, a Pentecostal assemblies of God church assemblies of God is the type of church I grew up in. Um, Jones held healing revivals there until 1955 and began to travel and speak at other churches in the latter rain movement. He was a guest speaker at a 1953 convention in Detroit. 
The Assemblies of God was strongly opposed to the latter rain movement. In 1955, they assigned a new pastor to Laurel Street Tabernacle, who enforced their denominational ban on healing revivals. So I will say that this change, Assemblies of God, was against healing revivals. They are no longer against healing revivals. They are all for healing revivals now. Um, this led Jones to leave and establish Wings of Healing, a new church that would later be renamed the People's Temple. Jones's new church attracted only 20 members who had come with him from the Laurel Street Tabernacle and was not able to financially support his vision. Jones saw a need for publicity and began seeking a way to popularize his ministry and recruit members. Jones began to closely associate with the Independent Assemblies of God. So you had Independent Assemblies of God, as far as I know, no longer exists. So you have the Assemblies of God, and then there were Assemblies of God is still today is a large group of churches um, they, uh, assemblies got is their own denomination. Um, mm. they, yes, they are Pentecostal Christians, but they're their own do- denomination. Um, international assemblies of God, they were people that were of that denomination that believed in the latter rain movement. So they kind of split themselves off from the regular assemblies of God. Now, after the Jim Jones thing happens and Jonestown, Assemblies of God cut that off and made them drop Assemblies of God, and they were basically just bombarded and wanted nothing to do with him. Um, I don't blame them. The IAOG had few requirements for ordaining ministers, and they were also accepting of divine healing practices. In June 1955, Jones held his first joint meetings with William Branham, a healing evangelist and Pentecostal leader in the Global Healing Revival. Um, in 1956, Jones was ordained as an IAOG minister by Joseph Matson Bose, a leader in the latter rain movement and the IAOG Jones quickly rose to prominence in the group and organized and hosted a healing convention to take place June 11th through the 15th, 1956 in Indianapolis's, uh, Cadle Tabernacle. Uh, needing a well-known figure to draw crowds, he arranged to share the pulpit again with Branham. Branham was known to tell attendees their names, address, and why they came for prayer before pronouncing them healed. Yeah. Interesting. Again, plants. Mm-hmm. Um, Jones was intrigued by Branham's methods and began performing the same feats. Jones and Branham's meetings were very successful and attracted an audience of 11,000 at their first joint campaign. At the convention, Branham issued a prophetic endorsement of Jones and his ministry, saying that God used the convention to send forth a new great ministry. Many attendees believed Jones's performance indicated that he possessed a supernatural gift and coupled with Branham's endorsement, it led to rapid growth of people's temple. Jones was particularly effective at recruitment among the African-American attendees at the conventions. According to a newspaper report, regular attendance at People's Temple swelled to a thousand thanks to publicity uh, Brandon provided for Jones and the People's Temple. So he goes from 20 people and in the matter of months, he's sitting at a thousand regular attendance. I can imagine this is very much now starting to 
feed into his ego and personality. It's one, like I said, I'm going to keep harping on this. This is just me. This is a narcissistic personality. And what do you do when you ju- you're just pouring gasoline onto a fire at this point? In my opinion, you're just pouring it on and it's, and there you, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Oh yeah. Um, Following the convention, Jones renamed his church the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. I I don't know why you need such a long name, but... Well, I, I, I find that through, historically a lot of... A lot of socialist and communist movements seem to just keep adding things, redundant names onto things, like the Democratic People's Republic of, of Korea. It's like... Oh, God. Like, just pick one, dude. Well, he picked this to associate it with full gospel uh, Pentecostalism. Um, so this being the f- difference between Pentecostal and... So I want to kind of explain to people that don't understand where Pentecostal Christianity came from. I don't. Um, so back in biblical times, uh, after the crucifixion of Jesus, you had his disciples. Um, his disciples were waiting for the resurrection and things like that because that's what they were told was going to happen. They all they were all in a room together. They began praying. They were praying. They were uh, waiting for Jesus to come back. Um, and this is what started the Pentecost. It was called the Pentecost. Um, the Pentecost, they then began to speak in tongues, which is known to be the angel of uh, the languages of the angels. Um, not able to be audibly heard by man, uh, but to be interpreted through an angel or through God for uh, a word from God. So the... Pentecost was a big movement in the biblical time. So a lot of the Christians took being Pentecostal Christian. And that's where you get the speaking in tongues and stuff like that. Nowadays, Pentecostal kind of goes with full gospel. So that's the difference. Full gospel Pentecostalism was laying of hands, uh, healing and stuff like that. Um, now Pentecostal is everything put together. Um, so that name was later shortened to the people's temple. Jones participated in a series of multi-state revival campaigns with Branham in the second half of the 1950s. Jones claimed to be a follower and uh, promoter of Branham's message during the period. People's Temple hosted a second international Pentecostal convention in 1957, which was again headlined by Branham. Through the conventions and with the support of Branham and Matson uh, Bowes, Jones secured connections through the Latter Rain movement. Jones adopted one of the Latter Rain's key doctrines, which he continued to promote for the rest of his life the manifested sons of God. Um. William Branham and the Latter Rain Movement promoted the belief that individuals could become manifestations of God with supernatural gifts and superhuman abilities. Yes. Okay. 
They believed that such a manifestation signaled the second coming of Christ and that the people endowed with these special gifts would usher in a millennial age of heaven on earth. Going completely against what the Bible says, but... I was... Yeah. Uh, I'll hold my comments toward the end. Jones was fascinated with the idea and adapted it to promote his own utopian ideas and eventually the idea that he was himself a manifestation of God. Surprise, surprise. Uh, (laughs) By the late 60s, Jones came to teach he was a manifestation of Christ the Revolution. Branham was a major influence on Jones, who subsequently adopted elements of Branham's methods, doctrines, and style. Like Branham, Jones would later claim to be a return of Elijah the prophet, the voice of God, a manifestation of Christ, and promote the belief that the end of the world was imminent. So this man, so this is... Jones is claiming to be Elijah the prophet. Okay, then. Yeah. Um, And a manifestation of Jesus Christ himself. Of course. Why settle for a prophet when you you can go all the way, right? Yeah. Jones learned some of his most successful recruitment tactics from Branham. He eventually separated from the latter rain movement following a bitter disagreement with Branham in which Jones prophesied Branham's death. So Branham wasn't too happy with that. Their disagreement was possibly related to Branham's racial teachings or Branham's increasingly vocal opposition to communism. Um, Through the latter rain movement, Jones became aware of Father Divine, an African-American spiritual leader in the International Peace Mission movement who was often uh I'm sorry, I lost my place. Um he was often denied by Pentecostal ministers for his claims to divinity. Uh in nineteen fifty six Jones made his first visit to investigate Father Divine's peace mission in Philadelphia. Jones was careful to explain that his visit to the peace mission was so he could give an authentic, unbiased, and objective statement about his activities to his fellow Pentecostal ministers. Divine served as another important influence on the development of Jones's ministry. While publicly disavowing many of Father Divine's teachings, Jones actually began to promote Divine's teachings on communal living and gradually implemented many of the outreach practices he witnessed at the Peace Mission, including setting up a soup kitchen and providing free groceries and clothing to the people in need. And this is where we're back at that. He's doing something to benefit himself, but in turn, it does benefit others. Um, so setting up a soup kitchen and feeding people in need. He did some good stuff, but it was and to I, further himself. Yes, I'm sure he was right there front and center of the soup kitchen, making sure they all knew it was coming from oh. him and the people's temple and everything. Oh, like I'm that. sure it. his name and face were on the fucking soup kitchen wall. Um, Jim, Jim Jones Campbell Soup. Yeah. Jones made a second visit to Father Divine in 1958 to learn more about his practices. Jones bragged to his congregation that he would like to be the successor of Father Divine and made many comparisons between their two ministries. Jones began progressively implementing the disciplinary practices he learned from Father Divine, 
which increasingly took control over the lives of members of the People's Temple. Um, this is where we're starting to see that branch off where it's going from a, a religious movement to a cult. cult. Where he's trying to control everything. As Jones gradually separated from Pentecostalism and the Latter Rain movement, he sought an organization that would be open to all of his beliefs. In 1960, People's Temple joined the Disciples of Christ denomination, which I believe does not exist anymore, whose headquarters was nearby in Indianapolis. Archie E. James, that's E. James, I-J-A-M-E-S, Assured. Okay, I could I could not understand. Yeah, it's E James. It's I don't know what kind of name that is, but it's E James. Assured Jones that the organization would tolerate his political beliefs, and Jones was finally ordained by Disciples of Christ in 1964. So, this is a thing. Back then, you had to be ordained by a certain denomination to be able to preach that denomination. That's no longer the case anymore. Now, um, and I st still technically am, even though I am agnostic, I am technically still an ordained minister. Um, I, was a, I was a youth pastor, children's pastor. I am uh, still an ordained minister. Once you're ordained, that never goes away. Um, it doesn't expire. You get ordained. And to be honest, everybody... You can go get ordained for $30 and 30 minutes online, just so you guys know. You, cho you choose what religion you want to be ordained in, and that's that. Um, Except for Catholicism, you still got to go to school for that. Um, but, yeah, nowadays you can literally go online, and it's technically it's free to be ordained, and then to have, like, all of your documentation to be able to marry people like I can, I can go in and marry somebody right now. Um, I would just have to have the stamps and stuff like that. Uh, that's what you pay for. Um, so Jones was ordained as a disciples minister at a time when the requirements for ordination vary greatly and disciples membership was open to any church. In both 1974 and 77, the disciples' leadership received allegation of abuse at People's Temple. Gas <gasps> shock. Shocking. They conducted investigations at the time, but they found no evidence of wrongdoing because he was very good at hiding it. Um, Plus, I would also I would also contend at this point he's also probably his congregation were probably starting to see the birth of the very core group of his most radical hardcore followers this is probably where he got a lot of them from oh yeah um let's see disciples of christ found people's temple to be an exemplary exemplary Christian ministry overcoming human differences and dedicated to human services. People's Temple contributed $1.1 million to the denomination between 66 and 77. In 
at the writing of this article, which was in 2020, that was $4.6 million. That's a lot of money for a uh, what is an up-and-coming yeah. Christian ministry to be donating money to. I would be very curious where he got that money. He's From already got people. kicked. Out. I true. I I we'll, we'll see. I would... We'll see later on. But just like most cults, he one I want to do because it's very close to home to me because the church I grew up in was right next to a cult. Literally, literally the church was here. The cult was here. And actually it's pretty famous. They own a cereal line, Kashi cereal. Never Uh, heard of it. So next time you go to the grocery store, I guarantee you guys have it. Go to go look in the cereal aisle. It'll be a white box, green writing that says Kashi K A S H I. That is owned by the cult. Um, but yeah, our cereal. Yeah. Does it have marshmallows? No, it's gross. It's absolutely disgusting. Um, I don't want to know. Our our church was here. Kashi was right here. Uh, And their leader was named Ma. M-A. A a guy named Ma? It was a female. Oh, it's a female. She was like like 600 pounds. Yeah. My my mom, who is a oncology nurse, actually treated her in the hospital before she died. Oh. Yeah. So she ended up dying of some type of cancer. But one of my... So... I lived in a very small town. One of my high school teachers was a member of that cult and was the all-seeing eye. Sauron? Yeah, yeah. No, he painted eyes on his face and everything. His name was Ramayana Baba. He was white. I'm going to call him Sauron. He was white. Ramayana K... Ramayana K. Baba. Nobody knew what the K was, so we just said Karen. Yeah, he hated us. And it went so we growing up. Karen. Well, well. Also, growing up, he knew because it was me and a couple. Uh, actually, my cousin's husband, uh, who was one of my friends growing up. Again, small town. Uh, they they got they got married, but um, it was there was like ten of us that went to that school that all went to the church. So we had him as a teacher and anytime. So when he found out we went to that church, he had it out for us. I, uh, Did you make any Lord of the Rings jokes with him? No, Lord of the Rings wasn't. Uh, I feel I mean, like, I feel like there was an opportunity missed there. I'm sure there was. Um, I would have had fun with this one. I would have yeah, just he, been throwing, I would have been melting now, rings down. When she died, he now runs the cult. Is this so, church called Mordor? I'm sorry, yeah. I love. I'm, I'm having too much fun. Um, I'm having too much fun. Yeah, I that, love Lord that, of the Rings. The place is nuts. Um, so, uh, Jones and the People's Temple remained part of the disciples until Jonestown massacre, which again we we'll, we will talk about in part two. Uh, in 1960. Indianapolis Mayor Charles Boswell appointed Jones director of the local Human Rights Commission. Great thing to do. Oh, boy. Jones ignored Boswell's advice to keep a low profile, however, and he used the position to secure new outlets for his views on local radio and television programs. The mayor and other commissioners asked him to uh, curtail his public actions, but he refused. 
Jones was widely cheered at a meeting of the NAACP and the Urban League when he encouraged his audience to be more militant, capping a speech with, let my people go. Moses over here. Just seems like they just keep. I don't. Did nobody notice this? I mean, I'm sure like maybe with we're all looking with hindsight with with everything that would come about and culminate with Jim Jones and and Jonestown. Maybe we look at it as a hindsight, but this it really seems like we have some pretty telltale signs of megalomania and, and narcissism. And well, the mayor of Indiana is just – you're just feeding the beast at this point. Well, what you also have to think is right now, this is in the sixty in the early 60s, early to mid-60s. So this was also the prime of the black movement with Martin Luther King because he didn't die until 68. So from – 60, uh, Martin Luther King died in 68. Oh, that was 67. Um, nope, he died in 68. Uh, okay. I believe, let's see, April 4th, 1968. Okay. Um. But, so this was in that whole, the whole black movement, all the protesting, the marches. Um. So him going to the NAACP and the Urban League, though, so if this would have been today and he would have walked up there and said, let my people go, he, he would have been I'm, white. He would have been whitewashed, um, because it's a white man saying that the black people are his people. Blah blah blah. But it definitely would not have gone over well today. But I think with the movement that they were in back then, and they had nobody standing up for them but somebody like MLK, and now you've got this radical preacher who owns a big church who is now the leader of a human rights movement saying let my people go they were enthralled i'm sure it would it got it, it definitely like you said it the civil rights movement was in full swing at this point so it would have been a lot better received than it would have been today oh, today yeah. i'm sure either most people wouldn't have really cared or it's like you said they it, it just would have been like stay in your lane kind of yeah. thing um during his time as commission director, Jones helped to racially integrate churches, restaurants, the telephone company, the Indianapolis Police Department, a theater, and an amusement park, and the Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital. When swastikas were painted on the homes of two black families, Jones walked through the neighborhood, comforted the local black community, and counseled white families not to move. This is the same kids, folks, that, that force his neighborhood kids and friends to goose step and, and see Heil through the neighborhood. Keep but that again, Just remember but that. But again, this is he, – yes, he's doing good things, which we have to take that into account. He did, he did good things, but he's doing it to better his church and better himself. And we're going to see, and if you watch any videos, which I encourage everybody, there are, there's a documentary on Jim Jones and the People's Church. You can actually find it on YouTube and I believe Netflix. Um, but they are also making a movie about it. And I cannot wait because Leonardo Ooh. DiCaprio is playing Jim Jones. 
Hmm. Which is going to be which is in- fucking amazing. Which is it? Which is interesting that we'll talk about later in part two. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio, like Jim Jones, had a pre- had a pre- um, a preference of younger women. Yes. Um. So, um, Jones set up sting operations in order to catch restaurants which refused to serve black customers. And wrote to American Nazi Party leaders and passed their responses to media. In 1961, Jones suffered and collapsed, or suffered a collapse and was hospitalized. The hospital accidentally placed Jones in its black ward, and he refused to be moved. And he began to make the beds and empty bedpans of black patients. This is what I talked about earlier. Um, because the black patients weren't being cared for. They would come in maybe once every few days and change their bedpans and change their sheets and stuff like that. So you can imagine the smell. You can imagine just the conditions were horrible. And guys, guys, this is in the sixties. Like you think of bad segregation. You're thinking like twenties, thirties, forties guys. This is in the sixties. This is not that long ago. It really is not. Ben was alive. <laughs> you remember segregation, don't you? Oh, I'm surprised you didn't make a joke about the Civil War. I haven't heard one of them in a while, you bastard. Yeah, I have said it. You just forgot. That dementia kicked in. <laughs> um, Shit. So political pressures, which resulted from Jones's actions, caused hospital officials to desegregate the wards. Um, in Indiana, Jones was criticized for his, uh, integrationist views. People's temple became a target of white supremacists. Among several incidents, a swastika was placed on the, on the temple. A stick of dynamite was left in the temple coal pile and a dead cat was thrown at Jones's house after a threatening phone call. I mean, he probably dropped it, dropped it out a window. Yeah. He did probably did it himself. Although like there said, was it, I, I don't remember if it was him. I think it was him who faked some threats against his life. Well, oh, probably. I, I, it was a cult leader, and I don't remember if it was him or not. We'll see when we go when we get into it later. But there was a couple that made made fake threats and everything. Um, actually, it may have been Scientology. I don't know. Scientology. That's one we're going to touch on. I cannot wait because we get to hopefully we I would love to get on their radar enough for them to try and do the shit that they do. Um, you, just just you mean see, like stalk the stalk the creators of South Park. Yeah, Scientology's fucking stalked a lot of people. They tried to get one girl for murder that tried to that was trying to write an article about her. They planted evidence and everything. They they got they her. They tried finger- to infiltrate the U.S. government. They got her fingerprints. They they brought oh, in a fake. They brought in a fake uh, thing for her to sign door to door. And when she touched the bottom of it, there was a pad down there that took her fingerprints under the clipboard, so that they could plant her fingerprints on stuff. But remember, folks, Scientology is not a cult. Yeah, yeah Tom Cruise. Yay. I, that's the best part is talking about the celebrities that were that are into Scientology. Uh, fun fact that uh, Lisa Marie Presley was born into Scientology. Oh boy. 
And she's not in it anymore. She left. Well, she's not into anything anymore. But I was about to say, didn't she die? She just died like a couple months ago. Um, Rest in peace, Lisa Marie Presley. Uh, But Elvis hated the Scientologist, so he would have turned over. I was about to say, I was getting worried. I'm like. The king he, was a Scientologist? No, he hated them. He would have turned over in his... He probably turned over in his grave when his daughter was born into Scientology. Um, so, we will be doing Scientology. That should be like a three or four-parter because it's so massive. Um, nevertheless, the publicity which was generated by Jones' activities attracted a larger, larger congregation... By the end of 1961, Indianapolis was a far more racially integrated city, and Jim Jones was almost entirely responsible. And that was, uh, it's very true. Indianapolis would not have been racially integrated if it was not for Jim Jones. Um, At least not right away. Yeah, it would have taken a long time. 1961, the end of 1961, that's very early. In recent in reintegration, um, Jones and his wife adopted. This was a big, big deal back then. Jones and his wife adopted several non-white children. Jones referred to his household as a rainbow family, and stated integration is a more personal thing with me now. It's a question of my son's future. Of course, this was a political statement. Um. He also portrayed the temple as a rainbow family. In 1954, the Joneses adopted their first child, Agnes, who is part Native American. In 1959, they adopted three Korean-American children named Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne and encouraged temple members to adopt orphans from war-ravaged Korea. Of course, this is 1959. Korea was not in good state at this point. Yeah, they would in 1959. The Korean conflict would have died down. The demilitarized zone would have been in full swing, being constructed. But there would have been a lot of devastation. Displaced families, displaced kids. Seoul would not have been completely rebuilt at this point. So yeah, yeah, this is this was definitely a thing back then. Um, one of his daughters, Stephanie, died at the age of five in a car accident in May of 1959. Um, in June of 1959, Jones and his wife had their only biological child naming him Stephen Gandhi. Yes, Stephen Gandhi. At least he named him after one of the good ones he liked. Yeah. At least it wasn't Stephen Hitler or Stephen Mal Jones. Yeah. Um... In 61, they became the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child, naming him Jim Jones Jr., or technically James W. Jones Jr. They adopted a white son, originally named Timothy Glenn Tupper, shortened to Tim, get this, whose birth mother was a member of the temple. Jones fathered him. Okay. Yeah. Um, he also We're just going to ignore the... We're just going to gloss over the extramarital affair well that wasn't the only one he also fathered jim john chemo with temple member carolyn layton so this is where we're getting into the occultism of the the 
interspousal relationships and fathering tons of kids and he's the only one allowed to do it and all of that. Um, in 1961, Jones warned his congregation that he had received visions of a nuclear attack that would devastate Indianapolis. His wife confided to her friends that he was becoming increasingly paranoid and fearful. Like other followers of William Branham, who moved to South America during the 60s, Jones may have been influenced by Branham's 1961 prophecy concerning the destruction of the United States in a nuclear war. Jones began to look for a way to escape the destruction he believed was imminent. In sixty in January of sixty two, he read an Esquire magazine article that uh, purported South America to be the safest place to reside to escape any impending nuclear war. Jones decided to travel to South America to scout for a site to relocate the People's Temple. Um, and. Jones made a stop in Georgetown, Guiana, on his way to Brazil. Jones held revival meetings in Guiana, which was an English-speaking British colony at the time. I believe it still is a British colony at this point. It is not. It is, in fact, independent. I believe, actually, it was at that point not to recently had recently gained its independence. It was just Guyana at that point. Uh, so it had probably had just not long um, broke away from the British Empire. I mean, because we're, we're talking about also like the Bahamas and stuff like that, which still it fell under the British colony. Um, oh, yeah. Still to this day, I, I visited over there and... It's definitely very interesting that uh, that they follow all that stuff. They drive on the opposite side of the road and all of that. And well, that's a that's a holdover from uh, yeah. British colonialism. It's very and- it's very weird uh, going over there. Like, I mean, you've you've been in Europe, but uh, mm-hmm. but well, most yeah, it it's weird going over there and seeing uh, driving on the opposite side of the road for the first time. And you're like, uh, that oh, is fuck. only an English thing. Yeah, it is. German that German is, is not... normal. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know they why. Just... Why England has to be different, but I don't know. Somebody, I, uh... one of one of our listeners that is British, tell me why you guys have to be so fucking different from everybody. Also, if you could send me some of that great tea that you have over there, I would very much. I will dump it, it in the water. I will brew it as proper. Uh, I will not put milk in it. I don't understand that part. That's Are you going to microwave the water? Uh, absolutely not. I have a kettle I <laughs> use. Thank you very much. You've seen my kettle. Don't act uh, like I don't own it. So, continuing to Brazil, Jones's family rented a modest three-bedroom home in Belo Horizonte. Uh, Jones studied the local economy and receptiveness of racial minorities to his message because, of course, racial minorities is his bread and butter. But he found the language to be a barrier. uh, Portuguese is not easy to learn. And believe it or not, what most people don't realize is it's just my interaction because not only was I stationed in Germany, I was stationed in Portugal 
and quite a few Brazilians lived in Portugal. Um, yes, there was racial discrimination in Brazil, primarily because Brazil was a colony of Portugal, and the Portuguese were the first. Portuguese and the Spanish were the first to introduce slavery to both yeah. North and South America. So a very large population of Africans was forcibly brought over to Brazil. So you have what? So you have many. Many Brazilians, like Americans, can trace their ancestral roots to Africa because of slavery. That's why they have very many African physical traits, I guess, however you want to describe it. A lot of their heritage is still there, but you also have Brazilians who are primarily descended of the non-slave Portuguese colonists, yeah. and they look very European. And there anybody tells you that there's no racial discrimination in brazil is listen there there's very racial discrimination in every country so i i agree it's just you know that is, i um no it's trying to combat ignorance whenever i can find it so careful to not portray himself as a communist he spoke of an uh, apostolic communal lifestyle rather than marxism the family then moved to Rio de Janeiro in mid-1963, where they worked with the poor in the favelas. Uh, unable to find a location he deemed suitable for People's Temple, Jones became plagued by guilt for abandoning the civil rights struggle in Indiana. During the year of his absence, regular attendance at People's Temple declined to less than 100. So he was at the thousands and is now at less than 100. Um... Jones demanded the People's Temple send its revenue to him in South America to support his efforts, and the church went into debt into debt to support his mission. In late 1963, Archie James sent word that the temple was about to collapse and threatened to resign if Jones did not soon return. Jones reluctantly returned to Indiana. Jones arrived in December 1963 to find People's Temple bitterly divided. Financial issues and low attendance forced Jones to sell the People's Temple's church building and relocate to a smaller building nearby to raise money jones briefly returned to the revival circuit traveling and holding healing campaigns with latter rain groups possibly to distract people temples members from the issues facing their group he told his indiana congregation that the world would be engulfed by nuclear war on july 15 1967 leading to a new socialist eden uh, learn, leading to a new socialist Eden on Earth and that the temple must move to Northern California for safety. Um, during 1964, Jones made multiple trips to California to find a suitable location to relocate. In July of 65, he and his followers began moving to their new location in Redwood Valley, California, near the city of Ukiah. Russell Winberg, People Temple's, uh, People's Temple's assistant pastor, strongly resisted Jones's efforts to move the congregation and warned members that Jones was abandoning Christianity. Winberg, Winberg took over leadership of the Indianapolis Church uh, when Jones departed. About 140 of Jones's most loyal followers made the move to California, while the rest remained behind with Winberg. In California, Jones took a job as a history and government teacher at an adult education school in Ukiah. He used his position to recruit for the People's Temple, teaching his students the benefits of Marxism and lecturing on religion. 
Jones planted loyal members of People's Temple in classes to help him with recruitment. There we go with the planting again. Um, Jones recruited 50 new members to the People's Temple in the first few months. In 67, Jones' followers coaxed another 75 members of the Indianapolis congregation and moved to California. Um, And then I... Let's see. In 68, the People's Temple, California location was admitted to the Disciples of Christ. Jones began to use denominational connection to promote People's Temple as part of the 1.5 million member denomination. Uh, He played up famous members of the Disciples, including Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover, and misrepresented the nature of his position in the denomination. By 1969, Jones increased the membership of People's Temple in California to 300. Jones developed a theology influenced by the teachings of William Branham and the Latter Rain Movement, Father Divine's divine economic socialism teachings, and infused with Jones's personal communist worldview. Jones referred to his views as uh, apostolic socialism. Jones concealed the communist aspects of his teaching until the late 1960s, following the relocation of People's Temple to California, where he began to gradually introduce his full beliefs to his followers. Jones taught that those who remained drugged with the opiate of religion had to be brought to enlightenment. So this is where we're seeing, which he defined as socialism. So we're seeing that he is just using today's words. He's gaslighting everybody into following his religion. Mm -hmm. Seems like, I don't know. As I read, as I, as I read this and I, and obviously I've, I've seen numerous documentaries and articles about Jim Jones and everything. It always seemed to me that, and just, and just after reading what you wrote on this and do in the research, it always seemed to me I I would very much if we could read his mind I would not be surprised if he just never really believed in God or at least if his faith disappeared like a while ago he just used it to gain more control and influence over everybody because it's his view is like you said he's gaslighting his followers into they no the opioid religion this is this he's very he, he's very much taking the he's he's getting away from religion which is i mean his congregation is the people's temple and yet he is slowly but very gradually and surely taking god and and jesus and all this other stuff taking the christ out of christianity in the sense of his in the sense of his his teachings um so i'm gonna kind of brush through a bunch of this because this is California was the start of stuff but it's not the bread and butter of it Um, he basically turned Christianity into a flyaway religion rejecting the Bible as being a tool to oppress women and non-whites he reverted to Christianity's view of God as a sky god who is no god at all um, he then claimed to be God and that there was no God besides him. Um, the idea of his own divinity increased. Uh, 
saying that he comes as a god socialist. Um, he would constantly attack Christianity. Um, he authored and circulated a tract entitled The Letter Killeth, criticizing the King James Bible and dismissing King James as a slave owner and a capitalist who is responsible for the corrupt translation of scripture. Um, he rejected even the few required tenets of the Disciples of Christ denomination, instead implementing the sacraments as prescribed by the disciples. Jones followed Father Divine's holy uh, communion practices. He created his own baptismal formula, baptizing his converts in, in the holy name of socialism. Um... Explaining the nature of sin, Jones stated, if you're born in capitalist America, racist America, fascist America, then you're born in sin. But if you're born in socialism, you're not born in sin. Um, he taught that America's capitalist culture was basically Babylon. Um, he warned his followers about uh, apocalyptic nuclear race war. Uh, he claimed that Nazis and white supremacists would put people of color into concentration camps. Obviously, we know Germans are still around. We are going to get into Project Paperclip at some point, which I cannot wait for. Um, mm -hmm. And word is is that we're also going to talk about something else, MK Ultra, which he was had a hand in. So, I I think he used his knowledge of the German still being around from Project Paperclip as a threatening tool. Um, so living the Acts of the Apostles was his euphemism for living a communal lifestyle. While in the U.S., he feared the public discovering the full extent of his communist views, which he worried would cost him the support of political leaders and risk people's temple being rejected, being ejected from the Disciples of Christ. He feared losing the church's tax exempt status and having to report his financial dealings to the IRS. Ugh. Um, historians are divided over whether Jones actually believed his own teachings or if he was just using them to manipulate people. Um, he taught his followers that the ends justify the means and authorized them to achieve his vision by any means necessary. He began using illicit drugs after moving to California, which further heightened his paranoia. He increasingly used fear to control and manipulate his followers, and he frequently warned his followers that there was an enemy seeking to destroy them. The identity of the enemy changed over time from the KKK to Nazis to redneck vigilantes and finally the American government. He frequently prophesied that fires, car accidents, and death or injury would come upon anyone unfaithful to him and his teachings. And he constantly pressed his followers to be aggressive in promoting and fulfilling his beliefs. Um, that is where I would like to pick up next week. On the second half of this, we're going to get into him getting a little more severe. Um, them leaving California and moving and forming Jonestown. Um so, yeah, I, I want to hold final thoughts until we're at the very, very end. But I definitely see that uh, where we're at now, it's just it goes downhill really quickly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, we would like to thank everyone for watching part one of the People's Temple, Jim Jones and Jonestown. Um, please tune in with us next week uh, for part two. And um, we would just like to thank you for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seat, and always tip the bard. Have a good night, everybody. Have a good night.